0: Welcome back, my friends, to the Shema Podcast. I have a very interesting topic I want to explore with you. It's something I personally need to explore. You know, I've found many things as I've learned Torah that still do not seem to reconcile with me. They don't reconcile with how I, I see the world. But I've been at this long enough to know that the Torah is perfect. It is God's insights on how He created the world. And so if I see something that's not reconciling with something that seems normal or would make sense to me, it means that I'm not making sense and I need to therefore reconcile to the Torah. And one of these topics that I've always been perplexed with is the fact that when the temple is restored, God willing, very soon, that we will return to bringing sacrifices. Now, I've never quite understood that. I mean, thinking first of what the the temple is, it is God's embassy in this world. Just like the United States has an embassy in China, and what takes place within that embassy is U.S. law, when the temple is restored, it is the heavenly embassy in this world and is the focal point of where the heavens and the earth connect. So, without any exposure to Torah, if you were to ask me what would take place in such a a holy, holy space, I would think that God would want us to study Torah there, to pray there, to meditate. The last thing I would have come up with is that he would ask us to march cows in there, slaughter them, sprinkle their blood, and then create a barbecue and enjoy a nice steak. But yet that is what he is asking us to do. There's something very deep here, something we all need to understand, something that God needs us to understand as we anticipate the coming of Mashiach and the temple being restored. So being such a lofty subject, I decided to bring on the rabbi that I know can really delve in deep on this, the great average Rabbi Busco. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the
1: podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights, intertwined through personal stories, as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars, demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show.
0: Welcome, Rabbi Busco. Uh, Thank you so much for having me here. It's great to be back. So before we begin, before you open our eyes to what seems so confusing, I wanted the audience to know about something you've been working on that I am super excited about. It is, in a way, very visionary, but in a way I'll say it's not visionary. And here's what I mean by that. You are starting this project, Torchwood. Torchwood. And I'm going to let Rabbi Busco explain this idea. And the reason I say it's visionary to some degree, but not in some another way is because if you look at the world through the lens of Torah, You know, the macro trends that are occurring now and where they are going to the future, which means what he is doing is basically in preparation for what is happening in the world today and where is all heading. So, Rabbi, you got to share with the audience this vision and what you are working on on Torchwood. Well, in short, Torchwood is
1: the most awesome Jewish community in the universe. That is the tagline. That's the official tagline. <laughs> it's a community project. Um, when you say community project, it sounds like a project within a community, but here the project is to build a community, and this is a slightly different model than what we find with many Jewish communities springing up around America and around the world, really. Which is that there's a classic model where you find where where are a bunch of Jews living? You know, if you want to do outreach and start a community, right? Where are the Jews living, and then you locate that area, set up some sort of central location around there, and then build a synagogue and try to get people involved in building the synagogue. And what we're doing here is sort of the opposite approach. Uh, we we did build a synagogue; it's it's true there it does exist, and God willing, it's it's developing very quickly. And even this week, we're going to have some very interesting developments. If you're interested, you could reach out and find out exactly what that is. But the The general approach that we're doing is we, we went to a place where there's no Jews, but it's a great location. And we want to attract the millennial generation, people that, you know, this generation's a little bit slow to get started in terms of establishing themselves and buying a house and getting married. So you have a lot of Jews that are in, maybe let's say like their early 30s or mid, late 30s, late 20s. It depends, you know, what, where they are in life. They want to settle down. They want to be part of a Jewish community. They want that community feel and, and and to be connected because we see they're attending programs. They're going to, you know, they see on social media there's some event happening. They go to these places so they want to be connected to other Jews. Right. But there's no neighborhood where they can all live together and then go to a backyard barbecue down the street with their friends and their kids will play in the cul-de-sac together. It doesn't exist in Houston. Yes. So our goal is to create from scratch a new community. We're not building houses. It's, it's in a pre-existing subdivision, but it's a, it's a beautiful location. It's perfect, uh perfect place to set up this, um, this community because it's surrounded by a lot of Jewish infrastructure, but it's not in a location where people will feel intimidated to move, which is a big thing. People want to move into a Jewish community. Basically, their only option is an ultra-religious atmosphere, which is a huge barrier for a lot of people. Right. So it's just beyond the border of that, but it's close enough that you can be connected if you want to. So it's kind of this perfect medium. It's average, I would say. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we want to just create a community, get people to, to move in and be connected on a social level and develop th- through life, settle right. down together, raise our kids together and there, there will be an opportunity to grow because we did build a shul. We're just not advertising that as much because the main thing is let's get connected. Let's ensure that, that we'll remain Jewish and that our children will remain Jewish. And that there's something solid to root us there. There will be opportunities to grow and to learn and community events. So that's Torchwood. And we're very excited about it. It's, uh, it's, it seems to be getting a lot of interest
0: and a lot of momentum. Amazing. So if you're, if you're listening and you meet that demographic, and the idea of, and you have that desire to start to really live a Torah observant lifestyle, but the idea of going to a community where people have been, who've grown up in it, been a yeshiva, it seems a little intimidating and you'll feel like a, an oddball, which is what I do, but I'm fine feeling like an oddball. I felt like one in my whole life, but where you can go be around people who grew up in a secular environment and now are all coming together to learn this lifestyle together. I, I think it's the, it definitely reach out to Rabbi Busco. I think it's definitely going to be a make a, a great fit for a lot of people. Yes. One more thing. It's very
1: affordable housing, which is a concern for, for a lot of people. I mean, it's, it's just, a, it's a dream. So
0: right. you, you want more details, reach out to me and I'll, I'll tell you all about it. And so you have excluded my ex-generation from going no 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 not no ex- it's okay <laughs> there's yeah. a target the millennial generation is the target but no one's excluded okay okay I thought you had some grudge against us because we had better music than your generation but it's it's, it's acknowledged there's no grudge there <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's get into this topic explain this to me why does God want us to be sacrificed explain what they all are because there's different sacrifices like the Minka sacrifices and all that yeah, the animal sacrifices. Just explain it to us, Rabbi, because we're lost. Okay, we'll, we'll get to all of that. Before we do, when you
1: say explain it, I want to give a disclaimer to this and what the expectations are. for having After having listened to this, what do you expect to come away with? Okay. Because you grow up, like you said, you know, this is so difficult to relate to. And it doesn't resonate with, with growing up in a modern society where you think of animal sacrifice as something so primitive and, uh, and barbaric. Right and there, there's a strong emotional connotation that's associated with that that's very negative so even if we have some sort of intellectual you know justification for it and we have an understanding for it so like, okay that makes sense even still it's not going to immediately flip that switch in your heart you're gonna you know come away from this from this podcast with like this burning desire that you want to slaughter a cow and, and spill its blood on an altar that's not gonna happen and uh and you're it's going to take a lot of time, if ever, to start relating to this emotionally differently. But what we're looking for here is at least an intellectual—you know, there was Rabbi Kellerman, a very famous rabbi and speaker. He wrote a book called Permission to Believe, and it was sort of predicated on this. He was reaching out to Jews that, that don't, don't believe in God, right. don't believe in the validity of the Torah— and this is sort of his point, he called it permission to believe because that emotional change overnight to think like, well, well, that makes sense. Now I'll just believe in God. Right. That's a lot to expect, but we want to give ourselves, we're so used to thinking this is crazy and, you know, only a, a silly um, brainwashed person would believe in such things. So in order to just change that, we want to give ourselves permission, intellectual permission to say, okay, well, I'm not crazy if I accept this. You know, there, there's some logic to it. So right. I just want to, you know, manage our expectations while we're while coming out of this. Okay. Um, in addition to that disclaimer, I also want to give another introduction, which, which you gave in your introduction. If we don't understand this, it's okay. Uh, Rav Dessler speaks about this at length in, in the beginning of his, it's called Michtav Melio, the letter from Elijah, his magnum opus to the world. He said, it's a very kosher response to approaching a subject that totally rocks your faith like this makes no sense to say am i supposed to understand everything i mean there are limitations to my knowledge and part of the humility that's required in learning torah is what happens when you're confronted with a topic that like you said you can't reconcile how do you respond what what we're used to saying what we would train ourselves to say is that doesn't make any sense and we should in general, throughout our lives, we should train ourselves, even with things that aren't Torah, just in general, for for our humility and for our ability to become wise and to learn, instead of saying, that doesn't make sense, to respond, I don't understand this. And it could be after investigation, you could conclude, well, it, it actually doesn't make sense. It's not true. But the first reaction should be, I don't understand this. And when it comes to Torah, the response is always, I don't understand this, and there must be some paradigm shift that's required for me in order to reconcile this. So I just want to reinforce what you were saying in your
0: introduction. I, I love that. You're making me think, too, that when you look at the, the Torah that we have in our possession, the secrets to everything in this world, the heavenly world, and we have it in documentation. So what did God do to put some barriers to make it inaccessible for many people well, I always thought like, well, one is he sort of buried a lot of the things within this narrative that we've sent out of the written Torah. But you just point out something, too, that he did. He makes it to where we have to approach it with humility. So arrogant people, and he can't reside with an arrogant person, if someone approaches Torah with arrogant, he has created a barrier for them to block them from approaching it. And that's why there's, there's a lot of things in there that aren't rationally going to make sense to us to some degree, maybe not at first, for that very reason. It, right, it, because it's not just a practical
1: thing, the humility, that, like you're saying, the Torah is designed that way. The Talmud says the Torah is likened to water. The verse compares it to water and says, Just like water flows from a high place down to its lowest point, so too the Torah always finds itself in the lowest people people that lower themselves, make themselves humble. So it is, it's is—it's a prerequisite, it's a requirement for for learning Torah. And if you find someone, this is unequivocal, if you find someone that is a Torah scholar, they are not arrogant. So either, if you find someone that looks like they are arrogant and they, and they have Torah, either they're not really arrogant and you're misinterpreting them, or it looks like they have Torah because they have a lot of information, but they don't have the real Torah that's permeated their being and they're not living with it. So this is 100% across the board it's not a generality it is unequivocal humility is a prerequisite for torah we're getting off topic this is
0: amazing. amazing no no it's great but it helps it helps it helps explain why there are things that are in the torah like several parshas ago where they stood at mount sinai and moshe like sprayed blood on them mm. that scene there's that scene that just seems sort of gruesome too Where Abraham cut, I believe it was a cow down the middle mm-hmm. and walked through it. And you're like, what is happening here? This seems so gruesome, but it seems like there are things embedded in there that if someone was arrogant and says it needs to make sense for me or needs to make sense to me to be true, then that arrogant person is blocked out. Sure. Yeah. And, and how could a person ever hope to grow in their wisdom if, if,
1: everything has to fit into a way they already understand the world, that person has no chance. Well,
0: I think that whole, that concept right there you just put forward is is amazing. We could, we could, we could turn the podcast off now and end it because that's a really amazing <laughs> idea to contemplate. All right, but let's, let's get into it. Tell us sure. what you No. Know. So one of the things,
1: one of the reasons why it's so difficult for us to relate to, and this is something that requires a little bit of faith, is that People that are listening to your podcast are probably familiar with the concept of the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination that's right. been in, instilled within us and gives us a natural drive towards anti-divine things. There used to be, for most of human history until a very specific point in history, and I'll get to that in one second, there used to be an unbelievably powerful drive, a Yetzir Hara, to serve idols and specifically to do animal sacrifice. There were four types of sacrifice that were general among all types of uh, religious services, idolatry and Judaism alike. Uh, number one is animal sacrifice. Bowing is one of them, cleaning an altar or cleaning before an altar and libations. These four things were universal in terms of all, these are you know just sort of basic fundamental ways of worship. Right. Well, you so you left off the, the ritual for, what was it, Baal Peor? So that was, that was unique. Right? <laughs>
0: that was not uh, universal. Are you going to explain what that is? So yeah. So apparently there was, and it's in the Parsha discussing when the Midnight women come in to seduce the Jewish men. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, first you have to worship our idol, Baal Peor. Mm-hmm. And now, well, how do you worship this idol? Well, you I guess stand in front of it drop trowel and you poop in front of it correct yeah the defecation it, it sounds ridiculous yeah there there is something deep
1: to that which is it's um you know utilizing the wasted energy which is what which is what feces is the excrement is energy that you've in, you've brought into the world into yourself and that wasn't used for a divine purpose sort of the leftover and you grab onto that which is totally immersed in forces of, of tumma of impurity right. and being able to manipulate that There, there is a lot of depth spiritual depth it's evil it is the right. essence of evil but there is a yeah. lot of spiritual depth to that okay. the, the Talmud actually relates now that you brought it up there was a woman who a Jewish woman who was passing by an altar of Baalpor she didn't know the way that they served it she was so disgusted by the fact that it was idolatry because she was a good Jewish woman she defecated And then threw her feces at the idol to to disgrace it so much because she was so disgusted by it. And then everyone came around and started praising her that she had had served the idol in the most (laughs) praiseworthy way. And that that backfired on her. But uh, but anyway, the point is that with with idolatry, this was was very universal. The concept of animal sacrifice, it was very natural. For people, which is which is crazy today. I mean, how do? Why would you think that spilling an animal's blood would be a way of serving your creator or any other kind of god? But it was. We see that there was a very powerful drive to do it. In fact, the the Talmud relates that people of yore, for many many years ago, they said that if you had been in our generation, sort of like a prophetic talk, if you had been in our generation you would have lifted your coattails and run to serve idolatry because the, the drive was so strong. It was much more powerful than even the sexual drive. It was a, a just incredibly powerful. And we find throughout all of human history that people were doing this in, in all sorts of civilizations. And we find even uh, in, in the first humans, when it comes, we have Adam and Eve and then their sons, Cain and Hevel, Cain and Abel. Right, And Cain, his first offering was similar to what you mentioned before, a mincha offering, which we'll get to later. is was an offering from the ground. It was an agricultural offering to Hashem. And his brother Abel, Hevel, brought an animal, an animal sacrifice. And Hashem turned to Abel's sacrifice and accepted it. And that's what caused the whole, the, the first war, the first war of, of humans between those two brothers it was Hashem turning to that sacrifice. He said, this is this is fundamental in terms of human behavior and human uh, Relationships with, with God. I did mention that there was a very specific point in history where this ended. And so I'll, I'll address that now. Toward the end of the second temple period, idolatry was rampant. And it was so strong, people had succumbed to it so much that the sages banded together and they together excised the Yetzir for idolatry. And the, the Talmud says something very interesting that when they did that, People, if they, would, they looked at the temple at the time, the temple in Jerusalem, they would see the image of a lion pouncing, emerging from the temple and going into the heavens. So a fascinating thing to unpack. We're, right. we're not going to do that. And, you know, by the way, it's not a coincidence that at that time, it also marked the end of prophecy. Because the same yetzer Hara, the drive towards evil, has an equal and opposite use for divinity. So that power that existed in the world that people were able to tap into this very intense spiritual nature of being able to access prophecy to see directly the higher realms, that channel was the same channel that that also facilitated the desire to do idolatry and to bring animal sacrifices to other sources. And so when they cut that channel off, we no longer had a desire to serve idolatry, and we also were cut
0: off from the ability to achieve prophecy. That's a side point. Okay. So base because basically in order to keep free will in check, if if you cut one side of the, the bell curve off, once one extreme on the negative side, which is this irrational desire for idolatry, then he had to take away the other side of the extreme, which is people having actual prophecy. It's more than that. It's not in order to balance free will. It's the same
1: force. Okay. The very same channel that gives us the access to prophecy is also that access to power that can be used in the negative way right right okay makes sense yes
0: yeah yeah that that does and i think it's important too for the listener to understand too that even though it seems like why would people have a desire for idolatry like you pointed out you said it was a greater desire than sexual promiscuity yes and now our the entire world is wrapped up in that but if you even approach that intellectually it makes no rational sense.
1: Excellent point you're bringing up right now because in the same time that they excised this Yetzir Hara for idolatry, they also, the next step was they removed the desire for sexual promiscuity as well. They did that. They got rid of it. And the Talmud says that it caused a big problem because even, even chickens weren't procreating. Right. Every, everyone stopped because, I mean, if you think, if there would be no uh, compelling pleasure to the sex drive, then it would just be messy and inconvenience and who would want to get involved in that right right if there's no pleasure at all so it's because there's this inborn spiritual drive towards these things that we feel like oh
0: makes a lot of sense because we've experienced it our whole lives okay so basically we 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 have these 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 spiritual drives that can either just go in one or two directions in all these types of situations that's right exactly okay okay now Having said that, we're
1: going to get into a little bit later more of the details of what the animal sacrifice is, but we find in our sources, and these are actually quite hard to find. It's interesting. You'd think a topic like this would be spoken about more more publicly in in Jewish sources, but these are actually quite hard to find. There is a well-known Maimonides, Rambam, in a book he wrote called The the Moreh Nevuchim, The Guide to the Perplexed in which he, he describes a lot of philosophical material about Judaism. And in there, he explains, or he gives a reason why we have animal sacrifices. And he says, very interesting, that God wanted to basically give us an outlet for our Yetzerhara, Hara, for Avodah for idolatry. So instead of serving idols with animal sacrifice— here we have a channel that we can we can get it out. We can bring our animal sacrifice because we have such a compelling drive to bring animal sacrifices. Instead of doing it to our idolatry, we have a kosher way of doing it towards Hashem. It's okay. almost like you know parents who have teenagers at home. You know they bring their friends over and they give them something to drink. Like oh, better they're doing it here in a kosher environment than. Go. But this right. answer is, I mean, the guide to the perplex. This answer is perplexing. Right. right. You'd think if you really want to curb the drive for idolatry for animal sacrifices how about just no animal sacrifices
0: right that that's one question and by the way the small podcast the podcast for the perplexed Mm -hmm. is an ode to mamadi's guide to the perplexed very good but here's the problem that's coming to my mind is that nobody in our generation is just yearning for an animal sacrifice so we restore the Third temple, everyone's not going to be like, oh, finally, I've been dying to do an animal sacrifice. So, how would that work in the future then?
1: So, remember that point because if you'll note, we in fact don't bring animal sacrifices today. Right. It's not a coincidence. The fact that there's no ability for us to bring animal sacrifices and also the the reason that the Rambam gave is to, you know, to curb our appetite for bringing animal sacrifices. We don't have that appetite. We also don't have an outlet for it, which is fine. So, There will be, like you said, you know, your original question is we're yearning for this restoration of the temple where there will be animal sacrifices. Then that
0: we'll still have to deal with. But at least his answer works for now. So to recap, to make sure I understand what you just said, Mamadi is saying that because we have no outlet for animal sacrifices, that that urge was that God took it away from us. See, he doesn't say that.
1: Okay, I, that that's what I put in, and we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. Okay, but he just says that the reason why we have animal sacrifices, why it was permissible, is in order to give us a kosher outlet for our you know natural desire desire to slaughter animals on an altar. Okay, okay, but right, it's still difficult to understand. Right, what we do see is throughout Jewish history, even before we built the tabernacle. And there was a structured way of bringing animal sacrifices. We were doing it already. One of the first mitzvah, one of the first mitzvahs that we ever had was to bring the korban pesach, the, right. the Passover sacrifice, that offering. Now we, we happened to be we ate it, but it was done in a way that it was a sacrifice. We spilled the blood. There was a whole procedure. It was a ritual. So this was always a part of Jewish practice, right? Bringing this animal sacrifice. Now, what people might not be aware of is that there was an ability to bring your own personal sacrifice on your own private altar, and that was called a bama. Bama is a private altar. Those were allowed until we built the mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert. Once we built that, nobody was allowed to bring a sacrifice in their own private altar anymore. They had to use the tabernacle. After we entered the land of Israel and the tabernacle was moving around, it didn't have a place yet It became, again, permissible because people were now scattered throughout the land of Israel. They wanted to bring a sacrifice to Hashem. They wanted so badly and deeply to to slaughter animals on an altar. So then it became permissible again to do it on their own private altars until the Mishkan became settled in a city called Shiloh. Okay. Once that happened, it, it went away again. And there's a whole dispute in the Talmud itself about... When exactly was it permissible? When was it not permissible? It was going back and forth until eventually they built the temple in Jerusalem. And that was the formal place to bring sacrifices. And then from that point on, the way we rule, at least because this is also disputed, from that point on, it became forbidden to bring a sacrifice on your own private altar. So again, just bringing out, this was very prevalent. It was something that was natural to most people that they wanted to do. And this kind of fits in line with what the Rambam was saying. I mean, it looks like when we didn't have a way of bringing the 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 sacrifice at the temple, people needed to they needed some outlet for it. They needed to do it on their own altar.
0: But what still needs to be answered is why are we commanded to do it at the temple? Right. There's probably a tie in here, and I think too Torah is teaches you everything you need to know about the human psychology because God built us and this is the user manual for us. But the Corbin sacrifice was a, it's a lamb, correct? The Pesach sacrifice. Mm-hmm. The Pesach sa- sacrifice is a, right. is a lamb, correct? A lamb or a goat. A lamb or a goat. And what, And that was also what the Egyptians worshipped, mm. right? Yes. So there was something to be, being a servant, a slave to Pharaoh when they worshiped the goat and the sheep for us to then, right before we left Exodus, to take their, what they saw as a guide and put it on a spigot and have a big, beautiful barbecue where they could smell. And we're, were devouring and eating who they saw as a god to sort of free ourselves from that, that mindset. True. Now, if you if it had been just
1: like that, what you just said, if we just made a barbecue, that would be one thing. Commandment. Find any goats that you can find a crowd of Egyptians and just cut the, you know, cut the throat of the goat open and, and make a big barbecue but that isn't exactly what happened there was a whole ritual and a procedure to bring it as an animal sacrifice and a ritual right, procedure to, to Hashem so we still need to understand that okay, okay I think at this point it's worthwhile going into what is the concept of a sacrifice I and mean, why why let's yes. intellectualize this a little bit why would someone want to do this I asked this question to one of my rabbis many years ago uh, when I was in yeshiva in Jerusalem, Rav Nuss and Weiss, should be live and be well? And he told me the following. And later on, I found sources for this in in the Maral, which I'll discuss a little bit. He says it's something that makes a lot of sense. I want to give everything to Hashem. I wish I could give everything to Hashem. Now, I could donate things to the temple. I could give charity, and that's kind of like giving to Hashem because it's doing Hashem's work. But... I mean, what if I could just give literally everything I am? Is there anything romantic than that? Just give everything I am to Hashem in in pure love and unity of just joining with Hashem. Just give me. Now, the best way to do that would be if I could just kill myself and just offer myself my entire body. That sounds morbid, but we don't mean it in the morbid sense. Kill myself sounds, uh, you know sounds dramatic and morbid, but to give my entire body, to give my entire essence. But there's a practical problem with that, because if I do that, then I'll be dead. And I can't continue serving Hashem in this world and doing mitzvahs and and all that. So that's a practical issue, but I wish that I could do that. So I can do the next best thing. I can give my life resources. Here's another thing we don't really relate to in this world. And this is sort of new, because this on the onset of, of... the Industrial Revolution. If you want food, you go to a grocery store and buy it off the shelf. If you need a new shirt, you go to one of the hundreds of clothing stores in your area and pick out what you like that's made in some factory in China. And then everything is so streamlined and, and comes from factories and we're so out of touch with how things are really made and how, how things really work in the world. And it used to be not that long ago that people were much more in touch with agriculture And animal husbandry, because those were the necessary things. There was a a large period of time where if you were a wealthy person, it probably meant that you had a lot of animals because you could sell the wool off of your sheep. Aside from using it for yourself, for your own clothes, if you have someone to make clothes out of wool, which, you know, a good wife would know how to do that. And uh, but you could sell the wool. You could sell the meat. You had animals. That was your livelihood. Wealth meant having a lot of livestock. Yes. That was standard in, in civilization up until recently. And so the concept of taking um, an animal that you rely on for your clothing and your food, you know, basically everything that you need to survive besides shelter, and giving that away, just giving it away, giving it to Hashem, right. was a statement of saying, I, don't, I can't give my life because I need to continue living it but I can give my life energy. This is my livelihood. This is what I work for. This is my blood, sweat, and tears that I've put into my job so that I could acquire this animal. This is my wealth, and I want to give it back to you. It is my lifeblood. It's in there. More than that, in order to reinforce this idea, there's a procedure called smicha. Smicha, if anyone's familiar with the term, they might think of I mean, it as rabbinic ordination. It comes from the same word because the original smicha of rabbinic ordination was mosha leaned his hands on Joshua and from that point on that was sort of the way of transmitting rabbinic authority was a leaning on of hands the word smicha literally means to lean on something and so the literal smicha of taking your hands and leaning on something transferring over something that you know our sages say that when Moshe put his hands on Joshua, Moses put his hands on Joshua to, to an uh, establish him as the next leader of the Jewish people, there was a visual transmission of holiness that took place. Vision, You could see this radiating glory that went from Moses to Joshua. Wow. Something from him went from inside Moses into Joshua when he leaned on him. He was transferring some of himself, putting his, his life energy into him. And so this is smicha. This is what it really is. So in the process of the, the mandated process, of bringing an animal sacrifice, a requirement was to do samicha on your animal. And this applied to every single individual. So let's say if a group of people all bought an animal together and wanted to bring it as a sacrifice, they would. it wasn't enough for one person to do this. Every single individual who was involved in the process needed to do their own personal leaning on of hands, the samicha, transferring their own identity, their life energy into the animal, implicitly stating, I wish I could be going up there on the altar, giving myself to Hashem.
0: I can't do that. You're going in my stead. Okay. That helps enlighten to a large degree what this is, because, you know, we're in this world, we have, we developed through Learning Torah, just this tremendous gratitude, this recognition to God that he created us and he created us to, to, for the sole purpose of bestowing goodness to us, Right. It's like getting a gift for a rich person. Like, what could I possibly get this person that they don't already have? And we're sort of stuck in that situation, how to reciprocate. And the only way we can really reciprocate is through showing that, that displaying that amuna or that that trust that I'm reliant on you. Anything that I, I do have here, I'm willing to offer it back to you. Even though I know you don't need it, but it's a way of me saying that what I depend on, I'm willing to give to you. And it's also a, a, an idea, of too, of that you accept that you are absolutely reliant on God. Is there some aspect of that to this? Yes, 100%. The maral basically says this. The maral
1: says that when you, give, when you give an animal to Hashem, he says, first of all, he points out the obvious that every Jew should know, that Hashem's not getting anything out of this. Hashem's infinite. It's not for Hashem. It's us making a statement. We're establishing a reality. And the reality that we're establishing, what we're, the statement that we're making is that I am totally subservient. Hashem is the master. And when I give what I own to the master, it, it shows that relationship. There's a law in, in uh, called slave ownership or um, you know, the, the relationship of indentured servitude in Torah law, that if you have an indentured servant anything that they acquire automatically becomes the ownership of the master, right? So any possessions of the servants become possessions of the master. So he says that what you're doing when you bring this animal to Hashem, what you're really stating is everything I own is, is for, is, belongs to Hashem. And this is me making that statement. Again, Hashem is not getting anything out of it. It's not a real gift to Hashem. He's not receiving it because nothing adds to Hashem. But for me, I need to know that I'm establishing that relationship. I am the servant and I am giving of mine to my master. He, there, he's, he points out, he goes further. There's another uh, establishment that comes through this is that you're you're also implicitly stating that Hashem is one. You're unifying all of reality by taking everything that you own, everything that you have, because there's a, you know, when you own things, it makes you feel like you're a big person, right? You're right. significant. When you channel everything back to Hashem,
0: You're unifying Hashem's name in the world. Because in essence, everything we have is Hashem's. So we are for our own benefit experiencing a recognition of that truth, which creates some connection. Yes. There's another reason that's given for animal sacrifices.
1: This one comes from the Ramban, Nachmanides, who the great sage, the great Kabbalist from, uh, from Spain about 800 years ago and it's sort of often brought in juxtaposition with the Rambam's position, which was very practical, you know, which we still didn't really understand very well. That uh, that it's just to satiate the desire for the eitzahara. Well, the Ramban comes with a totally different approach, and he says that the act of bringing the animal sacrifice is accomplishing such tremendous metaphysical systems that are that are being affected. By our bringing the sacrifice, the the which I'll speak about a little bit more. The Meshech was a Kabbalist. He calls it um, he calls it spiritual electricity. You're generating all sorts of energy in the heavens and channeling different uh, different flows of energy that are providing life force to different elements of reality. And uh, and this this is like wild stuff. So in addition to that, you mentioned before that the temple is a place where the heavens and the earth meet. So it's a little bit more than that. Maybe we've discussed this before. The Talmud says that it's a place where the heavens and the earth kiss. I think we have discussed this before. It's where they kiss. Because the mouth we spoke about on a different podcast, the mouth is the organ of connection. It's where two things connect. Right. And specifically eating. You know, the the mouth is the place where we eat. And the altar, this this is a phrase that's used by our sages, the eating, the consumption, really literally the eating of the altar. So there is a lot of this imagery of when we bring an animal sacrifice on the altar, that it's eating it. That Hashem, is eat, Hashem, so to speak, is eating these, this meal that we're preparing for him on his table. And so what does that mean? Right, Because right? we just said two seconds ago that Hashem's not getting anything out of this. What that means is that what, what does eating do? You have a body and you have a soul. And it's a little bit a little bit crazy that the soul can remain in the body. The soul is spiritual, the body is physical, the two have nothing to do with each other. And Hashem glues them together. And the glue that we need to be proactive in helping it stay together is the food that we eat. Right. The less we eat, we start to become faint. Right. And if we keep starving ourselves, not Eating for enough time, eventually the soul just leaves the body, i.e., death. Right? So, eating is, and, and through the mouth, which is the organ of connection, is the glue that binds the soul into the body. So, too, these animal sacrifices, based on what this Ramban is saying, these animal sacrifices that we're providing at the temple, somehow, I'm not going to explain this, I, I wish I could explain it, but somehow, this is the food for the world. It's the the connection, the energy that's binding the spiritual force, so to speak, the soul of the world to the body of the world, connecting the spiritual realm and the physical realm together and providing that energy and sustenance.
0: Okay. Lofty concept. I see that makes sense because everything in this world I've learned has a spiritual counterpart in the, in the heavenly realm. So what may seem like just slaughtering animal here is there's something else taking place in the the spiritual realm as well that we're just not cognizant of right okay so i I mentioned earlier the the kabbalist the meshech so
1: he wants to take the idea of the rambam that we mentioned and the idea of the ramban that we just mentioned and i'll bring this up in a second and reconcile the two of them so he says when the rambam told us in the Guides of the Perplexed, that the purpose of the sacrifices was to to satiate the desire for the Eitzahara, that he says is only talking about when we had a bama, if we remember that term, the private altars that weren't in the temple, and those that was a private thing. I need to bring an animal sacrifice to something. It can't be for idolatry, so I can I can channel it to Hashem, and that will be kosher. So that's where the Rambam comes in. That's not really doing anything. That's just, you know, rechanneling. Yeah, rechanneling this desire that you that you have and satiating your uh, your craving to bring an animal sacrifice on the private altar. But when we had a temple, and this temple was this microcosm for the for all of reality, the sort of map of the universe, and in order to provide energy. Because it's not just a like a museum of the universe, it's really the the temple and the Mishkan is like a little microchip that has the ability to control the entire universe. Okay? And that's where we interact with and that's how we operate the entire universe is through the temple when we had it. And so there, when we bring our sacrifices there, that had a real purpose. It was bringing that connection bringing that energy to certain places in, in the, you know w- whatever the different sacrifices were for in its appropriate time was providing energy to different elements of the universe and, uh, and conversely back to us uh, the, the Nefesh Hayim, who was a student of the Vilna Gon said that not only with this idea not only are we providing energy to the higher realms when we do that that's reflected back within us and it sustains our Nefesh our soul within our body so the, this whole process now how can we relate to any of this yes oh, by the way as an aside i heard a a, a cute thing people have, have asked this question often like what if you found out that you weren't jewish you know you've been living a jewish life you've been observant what if you found out all of a sudden you're not jewish what would you do first thing you know some people would say like you know i'd have to think about it some people would say, I'd run to the court right away and start the process of conversion. Other people would say, I'd have a cheeseburger first. <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, I'd stop at McDonald's on the way over to the court. Rav Shemshin Pincus, you know, we would think, oh, what would be the most religious thing to say? You would run straight to the court. You know, you love God. You want to be a Jew as soon as possible. Right. Rav Pinkus Pincus was, uh, was a great rabbi of the last generation. He said, before I'd go to the court, I'd build an altar in my backyard and bring an animal sacrifice to Hashem. <laughs> and then I'd go to the court to have the opportunity to bring a sacrifice to Hashem And something. Anyway, so I, I always thought like, wow, who would think of that, right? right. That's, that's amazing. And in fact, by the way, it is permissible, right? The, the reason he said that is it's only forbidden for Jews today Okay. to build their own private altar. It's forbidden for Jews to build their own private altar once we had the temple. And from that point on, It needs to only be in the temple and soon, please God will have the temple again. Um, But for non-Jews, they can do it. They can bring their own, build their own altar and bring an animal sacrifice. I actually spoke to someone who's a a Noahide, a non-Jew who believes in the Torah and believes it's all true. And I said, Hey, I said, kind of jokingly, why don't you, uh, why don't you build an altar in your backyard and bring an animal sacrifice? He said, of course, I already did that. (laughs) i was like, Oh, I didn't have many more conversations with him. But, you know, based on this yeah. the, the whole this whole idea kind of sounds like a mistake, though, right? Because it's, you're not, if this is true, you know what he's saying with the Rambam, you're not really accomplishing anything by putting it on your own private altar. You're just sort of channeling. It's okay. You're allowed to do it. You're just channeling your, your desire to bring a sacrifice. But so there not, wouldn't... Ac- right. According to this opinion, there wouldn't be much of a point in doing that. Right. It, wouldn't
0: have, a, it wouldn't have this
1: spiritual impact. Right. So what does have that spiritual impact today? And how is any of this relevant to our lives? So this, some people might be aware, we have our prayer services, right? The three prayers of the day, the Talmud says, brings two opinions. One says that the prayer services that we have, the three, morning, evening, and night prayer, correspond to our forefathers, that the three of them respectively prayed at different times of the day. We see that in the Torah. There's another opinion that's brought in the Talmud, and of course, they don't contradict at all. But the other opinion that's brought is that they correspond to the temple services when we would bring sacrifices. We brought every single day in the temple, we would bring a lamb in the morning, first thing, a lamb in the afternoon, the late afternoon, and then all of the remnants of the sacrifices that were brought that day were burned on the altar throughout the night. That's the evening prayer. So we have the morning prayer, the afternoon prayer, and the evening prayer. They don't just happen to correspond, right? Once we lost the ability to channel all of these energies and bring life sustenance to the world through our animal sacrifices in the temple, we still had an ability to do that. The ability to do that was now channeled through prayer. So this is, this is something very deep about prayer. And usually when we talk about prayer and how we relate to prayer, it's on a very personal level and your own relationship with God, you're making requests and all of that is true. There's a deeper element to it as well. When the men of the great assembly, this is right towards the end of the age of prophecy that we mentioned earlier, they instituted our prayers and they wrote it down word for word. And this is something we have trouble relating to. And I'm reciting these same words over and over again. Yeah, because it's much more than just your personal request. Like you should ask for these things. No, when we recite these words, it's almost like a magical incantation. Right. That when we recite these words, the Zohar says that each one of these words has been infused with spiritual power, that they each word goes up, angels are grabbing onto these words, each one bringing it up to the creator of the universe, and he's using these words to infuse energy and build the world. So our prayer services are in place of the animal sacrifices that were in the temple, that we're doing that, that we're infusing the world with energy. Now, this is why it's so important to pray with a minion. Because if you're thinking, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, who am I that my prayers should build the, the world? Well, you, you, uh, you got a point. <laughs> you're, you're not so much. If you're coming, you know, me, Chaim Busco, why should my prayers be providing so much energy to the world? So on one hand, I'm a Jew. That's not to be laughed at. But, but right, as an individual, I'm not much. But when I'm with a minion, a quorum of 10 men, us together, we come as a representative of the Jewish people, as the whole Jewish people, because you're not going to get all the Jews together. When you have 10 people, that's a representative of the whole. Right. By the way, why wow. is that? If you're curious, the number 10 is the number which represents a multiplicity that's been brought back to a singularity, if that makes sense. Yes. Right. Every number up until then represents something. Number seven is the you know, disparate stages of a natural order of things and then the number eight is one beyond that it's the supernatural you go up to every number has its own significance with the singular with its own you know stages and numbers when you get to 10 you bring it back to one but it's not just one because one is in is totally individual 10 is an individual that's been made up of a collective right that's the concept of the number 10 okay and so when you pray in a minion you have 10 men together what's happening is you have when you have at least 10 men, doesn't have to be exactly, you have at least 10 men present, then you have one system, you have the Jewish people. And now your prayer is no longer your individual prayer, but you are coming as part of the Jewish people. And when you are reciting these prayers, you're sending these words up into the heavens together with your Jewish brethren, you are accomplishing to a lesser degree, But you are accomplishing the purpose of bringing these animal sacrifices in the temple, providing energy and sustenance to the world, building the world with your prayers, with the rest of your brethren here. When I learned this idea years ago, it totally transformed my approach to prayer. When you become cognizant of this and and just aware of the power that you have been granted by being able to provide the world this, this kind of energy and, you know, really focusing on each word, pronouncing it correctly, having intention taking it seriously, the responsibility that you have when you're in this prayer service.
0: Amazing. So when the temple is restored, is that going to replace the prayers we do now? And second, it seems like it's going to be much more difficult when doing the sacrifices to think about your (laughs) workday. Because it's so easy to think about your workday while you're doing davening. I think about every project I have going on starts flowing through my mind. It seems like I won't be able to focus, uh, When the sacrifice and all the stuff going through uh, that. Right. So when you're focusing on collecting all the blood in the pail, it's it's hard to ignore.
1: Yeah. Will it replace prayer? Nothing will ever replace personal prayer. So that will always be in place. And we did have prayer services. People were praying uh, while we were bringing the sacrifices. So that was also always happening because there are personal benefits to your own personal prayer. And there's a requirement that you need to have that personal connection as well. So it won't be uh, supplanted by the restoration of the temple, but um, but it'll become. We won't rely on that to provide the energy for the world. We'll have the direct
0: channel of of interacting. I know what's going to happen. I've been working like really hard to learn Hebrew and try to get myself this vision that one day I can be a chazan and, and lead everything beautifully. And right when I finally got my skill set, it's like, damn, the Mashiach's here. The temple's rebuilt. We're not doing that anymore. Like right when I get there, it's like that's over with now. That's that
1: could be, but don't <laughs> don't hold off Mashiach because of that.
0: Okay, all right. Is there something to the blood aspect? Like there was that that in the Parsha where they're standing at Mount Sinai and they and like splash the blood. And it was part of the, it's part of the sacrifice process. And you know our, our blood contains that, that nephesh soul, yeah. The, the, that, sort of that, that spiritual energy that animates physicality or living beings. Is, is there something to that that's incorporated in this whole process where there's a lot going on with blood and a lot of this stuff? Yeah, not, not only is there something to
1: that, that is the whole process. The, it's all about the blood. In fact, that we have some of our, our commentaries say that it's called the Korban Hadam. It's the sacrifice of blood. And if you look, there are four main stages of the sacrifice that was done with an animal sacrifice. Number one is the slaughter. But what's interesting about this one is that it's kind of considered sort of like a quasi-step. It doesn't have the full-fledged force of the rest of the stages of the sacrifice. And you see that from the fact that, well, through many things. But one major thing is that you don't have to even be a Kohen to do the slaughtering of an of an animal in the temple, which is very okay. interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah, most... It, it, it's very clear that you need to be a Kohen in order to bring these sacrifices in the temple. But that first stage of the slaughter can be done by anyone. So it shows you that it's not really uh, an integral part. It's sort of just the way we can get to the blood, right? But once we get to the blood, now now you're working with the real stuff. So stage number two is the acceptance of the blood. In a pail, you have to catch all the blood in a, in a bucket. And then there's the bringing it, the transferring the blood from the place where it was slaughtered to the altar and then finally the the this last stage which is really the culmination of everything is when you take that pail of blood and splash it on the altar and every sacrifice has its own specifications where it needs to be slaughtered how, or where it needs to be spilled on the altar and how many times and, and which direction so there, there's a lot of details to that but it's all about the blood and you brought up the key word which is the word nefesh Right. Nefesh is like you said, that animating life force of the body. Uh, the, it's the spiritual elements that animates the body. This is what we want to give to Hashem, right? This idea that we said before, I want to give myself to Hashem. I want to give my Neshama or I want to, I'm sorry, I want to give my Nefesh because my Neshama already belongs to Hashem. My Nefesh is my animal life force that I, that I interact with. That is, I'm holding on to that. I want to give to Hashem. So I give the nefesh, the life force of my animal. And like we said before, this is kind of like my life force because I worked for it. I sweat for it. I bought it. This is my money. This is my livelihood. This is my nefesh, is the nefesh of the animal. I do the smicha. I do, I lean onto it. I transfer my life energy into this. The life energy is there in the blood. And that's what we're bringing up to Hashem. And again, to tie it into that deeper level that we just said, that what we're trying to do is bind the spiritual realm into the physical realm to give life energy sustenance to the world. And what that really is in the, in the analogy, say the physical world is like the body, the spiritual realm is the nefesh of the body because it's what br- gives it all of the content, all of the sustenance and energy right. of the world. So it's all about the nefesh, which is located in the blood. Yeah. Amazing. amazing
0: rabbi I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing some amazing insights but you know the uh, Peta organization is going to go berserko when we have the temple and the animal sacrifices so i hope we're all prepared for that oh that, that's the first thing in the war mashiach's going to get rid of Peta. <laughs> <laughs> amazing <laughs> rabbi thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with it's us my pleasure thank you for having me If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments,
1: suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest
0: rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.